something I thought you'd enjoy. <clears throat> that, uh, that someone posted, which um, just uh, talks a little bit more about this question of um, how we look or how we see things. It's a letter. It says, Dear Ma and Pa, I am well. Hope you are. Tell Brother Walt and Brother Elmer the Marine Corps beats working for old man Midge by a mile. Tell them to join up quick before all of the places are taken. I was restless at first because you get to stay in bed till 6 a.m. But I'm getting so I like to sleep late now. Tell Walt and Elmer all you do before breakfast is smooth your cot and shine some things. No hogs to slop, feed to pitch, mash to mix, wood to split, fire to lay, practically nothing. Men got to shave, but it's, but it's not so bad, there's warm water. Breakfast is strong on trimmings like fruit juice, cereal, eggs, bacon, etc., but kind of weak on chops, potatoes, ham, steak, fried eggplant, pie, and other regular food. But tell Walt and Elmer you can always sit by the two city boys that live on coffee. Their food, plus yours, holds you till noon, till you get fed again. It's no wonder these city boys can't walk much. We go on route marches, which the platoon sergeant says are long walks to harden us. If he thinks so, it's not my place to tell him different. A route march is about as far as to our mailbox at home. Then the city guys get sore feet and we all ride back in trucks. The sergeant is like a school teacher. He nags a lot. The captain is like the school board. Majors and colonels just ride around and frown. They don't bother you none. This next will kill Walt and Elmer with laughing. I keep getting medals for shooting. I don't know why. The bullseye is near as big as a chipmunk head and don't move. And it ain't shooting at you like the Higgett boys at home. All you got to do is lie there all comfortable and hit it. You don't even load your own cartridges. They come in boxes. Then we have what they call hand-to-hand -hand combat training. You get to wrestle with them city boys. I have to be real careful, though. They break real easy. It ain't like fighting with that old bull at home. I'm about the best they got at this, except for Tug Jordan from over in Silver Lake. I only beat him once. He joined up the same time as me, but I'm only five foot six and 130 pounds, and he's six foot eight and near 300 pounds dry. Be sure to tell Walt and Elba to hurry and join before other fellows get into the setup and come stampeding in. Your loving daughter, Alice. <laughs> Perception is everything, isn't it? Perception is reality. <laughs> we guide our lives according to what we see. So, we finished on the point about the kingdom last night. And uh, we, were, we were talking about the fact that um, churches and Christian people and leaders arrange themselves on a spectrum that has to do with is the kingdom already or is the kingdom not yet? Is the kingdom something which we wait for in the future or is the kingdom something that has landed and everything that it contained in that bucket, that basket that we looked at last night is readily available here and now 
on call. You kind of order from a menu. And so churches arrange themselves on the spectrum. So you have on the left-hand side the cessationist uh, churches or people who say um, the gifts of the Spirit and the, and the evidence of the kingdom of God. In other words, the breaking in of the power and the, and the authority of God as king is something that ended when the Bible was written. In other words, the gifts were there for the immediate establishment of the church. But once we had the Bible, we don't need that power anymore. We just need to have stories about how that power used to be um, available. And so that's the cessationist or the pietist point of view. On the other extreme is the charismaniac view that basically says the kingdom is all here and now. And so... The, 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 the kind of phrases that we use about these, pie in the sky when you die, or steak on the plate while you wait. Yeah. yeah. And of course, each of them have their problems practically. The, the practical problem of those on the left-hand side is that Christianity becomes an exercise in... Uh, nostalgia. The Bible is just a lovely story about how God used to do stuff. Uh, and it becomes something where essentially Christianity then is, um, is, base, is uh, uh, um, learning but never seeing things happen. We, we, uh, we don't expect much and so we don't get much in that point of view. On the other extreme, the, the charismaniac point of view can set people up for disillusionment. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've been a Christian for longer than five minutes, you will know that God doesn't do our bidding. That it is not as simple as going into a restaurant, reading the menu and ordering what's on it, and then waiting for the waiter to bring it to you. God is not the waiter. He's not even the chef. God is not the butler. God is not at our disposal. The whole idea of kingdom, and this is something I've been, I've been, uh, I felt exercised about in recent times. The whole idea of kingdom is both power and authority. And I think we over, we sometimes overplay the power and underplay the authority. Which is to say, God is king. God is Lord. God is Huge, God is powerful, therefore, you know, we, um, we, we, we can expect his power to break in and it's wonderful. But also God is king, God is powerful, and God is uh, the, the Lord of the universe and we ain't. Therefore, we don't tell him what to do. Our job is to find out what he's doing and join him. And so the... Um, your theology or your worldview will determine your expectation and your ministry style. How do you approach someone in order to pray for them when they're sick, based on these two points of view? Well, you know the cessationists will have, they will sometimes pray for people to be healed. And the prayers will go along the lines of, Lord, 
We know that you don't do this stuff a whole lot, but if you re- if really, 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 it would be nice. And uh, if it be your will, then please will you help this person feel better, even just a little bit, even just take the headache away. Um, so, so, so there's that kind of praying. The other one is name it, claim it, and frame it. The, the, the other one goes into the, into the uh, situation with all guns blazing and kind of demands. Uh, I, I, I think I've told this story as well before, but the, the first time I prayed for a sick person, uh, we had just planted our first church. It wasn't the first time I'd prayed for someone, but first time I was where the buck stopped, you know. Um, and... Uh, we, we, had, we had planted our church. We had gone public for the first Sunday. Uh, I think it was the first Sunday that this person came and um, she enjoyed the service and so on. And she said afterwards, do you sometimes, you know, come to people's homes and pray for them? And I said, of course, of course. You know, when you're planting a church, you, you'll go after a dog if you can get them to join your church. So, so I, I went... Um, that after, Lorraine and I went to visit this person, and it was about her mother who had a brain tumor. And the, uh, and the story went that um, she, she was in terrible agony. She was in a kind of a, a lounger chair and in, in the lounge, and we, we sat there. And so I thought, how do I hedge my bets? So the first thing to do was to go through a whole presentation of the gospel, you see. So I did all of that, and, and then I said, now, would you like to receive Jesus? And she said, you know, I don't think so, because I feel badly about the fact that I haven't believed and I haven't trusted and I haven't served him um, for all this time, and so why should I now just take him because I'm in trouble? Uh, isn't that a little bit hypocritical? So I thought, okay, we've run out of hedging, so let's, let's move on. So I said, well, we're here because you're ill and we'd like to pray for you. Is, is, is that okay? She said, yes. And kind of spontaneously, and I like to believe that somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit was telling me to do this. I opened to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 16 to 20, and I read, these signs will follow them that believe. And it finishes, as you know, they will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So I put my finger on the verse and I walked over to her chair and I pointed at it and I said, whose handwriting is that? She said, I don't know what you mean. I said, Who, whose words are those? Whose handwriting is that? She said, God's? I said, yes, that's right. So we're going to do what God tells us to do. And if God doesn't heal you, then his word isn't true. And as I said it, I was trying to reel the words back into my mouth at the same time. It was just one of those. It came out of my mouth before I thought about it. Lorraine was trying to crawl under the couch on the other side of the room. And then now I was on the spot. And so I laid my hands on her head and dribbled some kind of prayer that kind of dribbled down my chin. And, and we got out of there as fast as we could. And uh, 
The next morning, her daughter phoned, no, the next afternoon, her daughter phoned us. She had gone for a scan that, that morning where they were going to see how they were going to do the surgery to remove the brain tumor. And she said, uh, this is a wonderful, amazing thing. She said, do you know what happened? I said, no, what happened? She said, well, as soon as you left, the headache left, left her. She, her headache was gone. And she said, and then we went, we went for the scan, and they did the scan, and they can't find any cancer. She's completely healed. So you know what I did, of course. I made that my technique. The next time there was someone sick, Mark 16, 16, point, whose handwriting is that? I did it and fell flat on my rear end. Because, you see, God will not be bound to a technique. He will not be bound to our methodologies in this thing. As it happened, accidentally, without any real information or without any wisdom at all, I stumbled on what the Holy Spirit was saying in that situation. And, and, and the result was that she, that she was healed. And so our, our, our ministry is going, to be, is going to follow our expectation or, if you like, our theology. In our understanding, the kingdom is both already and not yet. As, as I said yesterday, we straddle the times. And, and we have to hold that tension in ourselves. And what that means is most of the time... We, are spe- we spend most of our time in praying, asking the Lord how to pray. We, we need to pray that we may pray. We need to pray. I said it last night. We need to pray until our spirits are in some way in sync with His. And it's at those times that we will pray, as John says it, if we ask anything according to His will, His will in the moment. Not his will in some kind of um, uh, body of truth. Not his will in some, in some statement of faith. Not his will according to our interpretation even of scripture. But his will as he is speaking to us in the moment and saying, now do this. All right, so I've spent a lot of time on that. Let's, let's move on. So this, mor- this morning we want to uh, speak about this wonderful subject of who is the Holy Spirit. Jesus, before he left, made, gave that long sermon. We talked last night about the shortest sermon, which was Mark chapter 1. The longest sermon is John chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, which ends, in fact, with a prayer, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in that sermon, he speaks about this person, this other counselor that he was going to send. One, uh, one little girl, uh, having heard a teaching about the Holy Spirit, and her, and her mother said, so who is the Holy Spirit? She said, Jesus' other self. And she was absolutely right, because when Jesus uses the word, the other comforter, or the other counselor, it, the, the, the Greek word means other like the, like the first one. Another one like the first one. And so when he says, I will send you another counselor, another comforter, 
He means someone just like me is going to come. He's going to have the same attributes as I have. He's going to have the same heart, the same compassion, the same desire to bless, the same power to do the things that I've been doing. So, of course, when we speak about the Holy Spirit, we could really sum it all up right here by saying the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead we believe in. Now, you know, the church has some false trinities. There are, there are churches that have the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. There are some churches that have the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Minister. Or, in fact, even the Father, the Son, and the Holy Church. And there's been, I think, over the years, and we are in a blessed season right now, where the church has realized that the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We need to take time in our personal lives on a regular basis to repent of our neglect of the Holy Spirit. Jesus thought a whole lot of him. Oh, and by the way, when we speak about him, uh, I, I said it last night in a kind of, uh, I caught myself in a little fix over there, uh, when I said him and him and him. Uh, the interesting thing is the word, the Old Testament word for spirit is ruach, and it's a feminine noun. And so the one part or person within the Trinity uh, that, is, um, that we're speaking about today uh, has a, a in, in, in the Hebrew understanding, has, carries the idea that God is gender neutral. God is not genderized. We speak about God as him purely for understanding, but in fact God contains the masculine and the feminine uh, all within himself. One of my lecturers at university uh, recently was, was using the... Uh, he, he constantly, and he's disciplined himself in this way, he speaks about God as God-self. Instead of himself, he says, God, God-self, and then he goes on and speaks like that. So he's trying to emphasize the point that we, that we, sometimes, uh, we, we sometimes reduce God to our own to our own uh, ability to understand. That is, in fact, we, we call the, these things anthropomorphisms. It basically means we take human di dimensionality, human ways of understanding, and we attribute those to God. This, the scripture writers did that. So they speak about the hand of God and the arm of God and the eye of God and the mind of God and all of these things. And, of course, um, they, can, they can give us a the impression that God is just really a man, but much bigger. That he's, he's very different. God is different to all of our imaginings about him. And so, when we come to this person called the Holy Spirit, this is the uh, statement of the Nicene Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And by the way, they took years to, to, to com complete this clause of the Nicene Creed, and particularly the, the last phrase, and the Son. It was called the filioque clause, and it had to do with 
Does the Spirit proceed from the Father in the name of the Son, or does the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son? Is the Father the, uh, the, the if you like, the, the, the CEO of the Trinity? And, uh, um, and, the, and the, uh, the Son is the, uh, is the manager, and the Holy Spirit is the executor. Uh, people use this kind of language. So, so the idea, even, even this clause is not perfect. It's not scripture. It's just the way that human beings had of trying to define the Trinity. So even this clause can give a wrong impression, can give the impression of the Holy Spirit somehow being junior, somehow being uh, an inferior part of the Godhead. But what we are dealing with when it comes to the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father and the Son, having the same authority, the same power, the same attributes, the same nature. And so when we speak about the Trinity, we speak about what the Greek, one of the uh, desert fathers called the perichoresis, perichoresis. And what that means is the dance around. It's a beautiful explanation of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this kind of whirling dance where as you see the Trinity coming past, what you see is three and one and three and one and three and one and three and three and one, two, three, one, and different but the same, inextricably bound together and yet having these individual attributes and marks and characteristics that help us to understand God is one but he is more than one. It's a mystery. So the Holy Spirit is an inextricable part of that perichoresis. A denial of the deity of one involves a denial of the entire Godhead. Belief in the Trinity necessitates a belief in the deity of the Holy Spirit. So let's have a look at some of the marks. And I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because time is few. So I'll just um, quickly go through these. The Holy Spirit holds divine titles. He is spoken about as the Spirit of God in many places in Scripture. Of course, in Genesis 1 verse 2, we see the first mention of the Spirit. The, the, the earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the waters and the Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. He is called the Spirit of Christ in Romans chapter 8. This is not a different spirit. This is the same spirit. He is the spirit that, is, that pervades all of the Godhead because God is spirit. And when we speak of the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, we're talking about the same being, the same person. He shows divine attributes like he is the spirit who gives life. Romans chapter 8 verse 2, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He has omniscience. He knows all things. The spirit within you knows all things. Think about that. John, writing his first letter, says you have an anointing that abides in you and you know everything. Why? Because the spirit in you knows all things. Now keep this in mind as we speak because... As we identify the attributes and characteristics of the Spirit, you need to know all of this, all of these dimensions live within you if the Spirit of God is in you. 
You have the capacity to know things that only God knows. You have the capacity to see things God's way. See things through His eyes. It doesn't mean that you ever have the authority that God has. He keeps all of that authority to Himself. What He's looking for is extensions of His hand that operate according to His heart. That's the purpose of the church. That's the idea that God had in this thing called the body of Christ. So he has omniscience. He has omnipotence. Job chapter 33 verse 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. He is almighty. He ha- that, the word almighty means om- omnipotent, which is just a Latin word for the same thing. Is omnipresence. Where shall I go from your spirit? Said David in Psalm 139. I can't escape him. He's everywhere. And uh, David, I think, got the, got the picture, got the message that Bob Mumford shared some years ago when he said uh, the Lord one day was saying uh, to him um, this this text, you know, God is everywhere. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he said, and suddenly I realized that's not so much a promise as it's a threat. And so what else? He is to, therefore, when we speak about the Spirit of God, He is to be worshipped. He is to be depended on. He is to be served. The Holy Spirit is not a tool or a toy that we can use, that we can do with what we will, that we can take for granted, or that we should ever neglect. He is also, not only is he a divine person, but he is a divine person. So he also has personhood or personality. So quickly to say all of this, this is the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, and so he has intellect. Um, it, when it speaks in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything. The word search means to examine, to investigate, to engage with intelligently. The Spirit of God also um, has um, knowledge, so he has intellect, he has knowledge, he has a mind. Romans 8 verse 27. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. We won't go through all these scriptures now, but if you can jot them down and make a little study of it, it would, it would bless you, I'm sure. Even more wonderfully, the Spirit of God has emotion. The Spirit can be grieved or is grieved, Paul says in Ephesians 4 and 2 Corinthians 2. Of course, the Spirit of God is the Spirit that, that brings a capacity to love into, into our hearts. Where the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He is the carrier, if you like, of the attributes of God, including uh, passion, love. We wouldn't be able to love were it not for the Spirit of God who has entered us and caused us to love. I often say to people, you need to understand this thing about love. We love because He first loved us, which doesn't mean that 
we, we, um, we, we do it out of a kind of a gr- grateful response. We do it out of a complete inability to do it by reflecting the love that God himself has shown us. In other words, we're not stars, we're planets. We do not have self-generating capacities to do things like loving unconditionally. All we do is we get into the orbit of that sun and we reflect. We reflect the light that is not our own. But at another level, please understand that this light, this love, this power, this, these attributes are within you now. He also has another characteristic of personhood, which is will. The Holy Spirit has the capacity to will things, to make decisions. So the, the Greek word bulatai, which, or bulatai, which literally means to be determined about. Not just to go, I would like that to happen, but to determine that they will happen within the realm of that person's authority. A decision of the will after previous deliberations. Now, by the way, keep, as you keep all of these things in mind, keep in mind the fact that He is in you. Therefore, from time to time, what is going to happen is the will of the Holy Spirit is going to become evident in the things that you will. The emotion of the Holy Spirit is going to break your heart. When that happens, be alert, be awake, recognize. When you feel a compassion that you didn't have before, when you feel your heart is breaking for someone that you never thought about before, or you didn't think about in that particular way before, when you feel an urge to forgive someone that you were determined in yourself you will never forgive, wake up and smell the coffee. And understand, the Spirit of God is stronger in you than you believe, than you understand. And He's going to make you do some outrageous things. He's going to make you love people that you previously hated and hate people that you previously loved. Oops. I should have said, the, the things about, when we talk about the emotions of the Spirit, there are things that God hates. And the Spirit of God in you will start to hate those things. I I said people a moment ago. Rub that out. Things. God hates things, certain things. He hates hates the divorce of treachery. He hates it. He hates um, abuse. He hates injustice. He hates the neglect of the poor. He hates the, uh, the, 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 the fact that, the, that the, the, the widows and the defenseless are, are ignored or neglected. He hates that. Jesus said when, um, when, the, when the Pharisees were tackling him, three times over he uses this, this thing, this uh, text. When they come to him about various matters of the law, he says, you should have learned... What the lesser things of the law say, like, um, I love mercy and not sacrifice. You should should have clung to those things and not 
not uh, sacrifice them to your theology. Okay, moving on. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, and some of the ways in which we can see that, that he has titles that are applicable to a person. The word counselor is the one who comes alongside to help, the one who is called alongside to help. This is a personal term. Jesus uses the personal pronoun of the Spirit sixteen uh, in John chapter 16 numerous times. Twelve times, in fact, he uses a personal pronoun for the Spirit. So the Spirit is never an it. The Spirit is always a he or a person. He has personhood. He does things that are applicable to a person. We've said some of these already. He searches. He prays. Did you know that the Holy Spirit prays in you and through you? There's a couple of texts that I often say to God I love to agree with. Romans 8.26 is one of them. It starts out like this. It says, we do not know how to pray as we ought. I go, you got me. That's me. That's me. Anybody else? The other one is, if anyone lack wisdom, I go, that's me. That's me. That's me. Because both of them have wonderful answers, you know. But you only get the answer if you own up to the problem. I do not know how to pray as I ought. So the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, praying through us with groanings too deep for words. If I, on the other hand, enter the place of prayer thinking, I can do this, what, I, what do I get? I get a one-way conversation. I, get a, I go through a shopping list and I feel very good about it afterwards and God has been going... You do not know how to pray as you ought, you idiot. No, actually, he doesn't ever say I'm an idiot. He sometimes says I'm a turkey. He has told me that. He's called me a turkey. Imagine doing that to a Greek. A turkey. It's rude, you know. Anyway, where was I? Um, so, he prays through us. He teaches he instructs, he enlightens, he speaks, he testifies, he bears witness. Isn't that a lovely thing when the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit? See, a lot of the time, what happens is he gives us hints. It's like a, it's like a bit of a treasure hunt. He gives you a, a hint. And so he points in a particular direction, and then you, you go, oh, th this? And then something inside you goes, Yes. Something inside you knows you're right. You're headed in the right direction. You mean I should pray for her? And he goes, yes, Turkey. There's a, there's a witness. There's a thing that in, in, the, in the Psalms it speaks about deep calling to deep. There's a, there's a, there's a connection. There's like a resonance between God's heart and your heart. He confirms, very often he confirms, the witness confirms the truth, you see. What does a witness do in court? A witness is not, doesn't bring the charge, the witness confirms evidence that, that uh, supports, either supports the charge or gets the person off from the charge. That's what witnesses are for. The Holy Spirit is the witness who bears witness, who in fact confirms something that is already going on. 
And so, as John Wimber used to say, I knowed it in my Noah. I have a Noah. Not a N-O-A-H, K-N-O-W-E-R. I have a Noah. When an American says it, it's easier to understand, right? Knower. I, I know it in my knower. That knower is in fact uh, the anointing, the Holy Spirit. Trust that thing, because here's the, here's the deal. The more you trust that, that knower on the inside, the louder the voice of the knower becomes. Every time you act on it, and you were... You find out, wow, I, I did good. I was right. Yes, actually says, no, it wasn't you that was right. It was me that was right, but you just happened to cooperate. Good, good boy. Attaboy. Pats you on the head. Attaboy. There's a treat. But every time you do that, the next time that happens, you go, ah, I know that voice. I know that voice. The more you cooperate, the louder the voice of the Spirit becomes. He gives glory to Jesus. He's the one who's constantly pointing to the preeminence of Christ. By the way, that does not, once again, that does not mean that he himself is not also worthy of worship and glory. We must understand this. People have made big deals out of it, that text and say, we should never speak about the Holy Spirit because his job is to witness to Jesus. His job is to give glory to Jesus. We should never speak about him. We should never, let alone something as, as, as uh, heretical as pray to him. <laughs> there are people that have serious questions about praying to the Holy Spirit. And I go, well, first of all, he's God. Second of all, he's a person. So why on earth should I not pray to him? When Jesus said, pray like this, our Father, that doesn't mean... That's the only address that you should ever have in any prayer. It's equally good to say, Lord Jesus Christ, at the beginning of your prayer. It's equally good to, to say, Holy Spirit of God, at the beginning of your prayer. Because whenever you address any person of the Godhead, all of the Godhead is present. All of the Godhead goes, okay, yes, listening, present, here, yes. He counsels. He is therefore for reverential relationship, not entertainment, nor equipment. So, we affirm the Holy Spirit's personhood for these reasons, so that we may worship God appropriately. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. That we may avoid the trap of pride. The trap of pride, or the opposite trap, which is the, the trap of inadequacy, or false modesty. The trap that says, Holy Spirit can never use me. I'm not good enough. Because you see, it's not about how good you are, it's about how good He is. All you are is a clay pot. And the pot has to crack to let out the treasure. We may rightly relate to the indwelling God. God is not an alien. Let me just make this point quickly. God is not an alien that we have to wait for and say, let's just pray and pray hard until the Lord arrives. He's not an alien. The Lord your God is within you. God in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ among you, the hope of glory. When the church shows up, God is the, 
as I said last night, God was there waiting for us. And then when we show up, He's there with bells on. He's there with more enthusiasm. Because you came under His authority, in His name. So, moving on, computer. So, our relationship with Him should be one that believes, receives, relates, worships, and partners with. That's what He wants. He wants us to relate to Him like that. This lamp is getting a little bit uh, weak, eh, Al? Need a stronger one. Okay. And so remember that all of these things that we've said about the Spirit of God can manifest themselves in and through you at any moment that He chooses and you're available. Can I say that again? Any time that He chooses and you're available. Now I think the Holy Spirit chooses a lot more than we're available. I think that's our problem. Our problem is that we don't expect him to choose us. So, so a, as you wake up every morning, I want you to get into the dis, this discipline. As your feet hit the floor in the morning, say, I'm on his team. He picked me. Thank you, Lord. So say two things every morning. Good morning, Holy Spirit. I like that, that one title of a book written by Benny Hinn that I like. Good morning, Holy Spirit. The good morning, Holy Spirit, means that you are putting yourself into a relational flow with this person who is in your, in your room as you, as you wake up in the morning. And the second thing is, thank you for picking, I'm on your team. Uh, one of those children's letters to God, I, I collect those, you know, those children's letters to God, lovely ones. And my favorite one of all time is one that says, dear God, count me in, your friend Herbie. That's a lovely prayer for us to pray every morning. Dear God, count me in. Whatever you're going to be doing anywhere within 10 meters of me today, count me in. Can you please involve me? I would like a little, I would like a little piece of that. Give me a piece of that. Give me a little involvement. I, I think God is looking for people. He's looking for people not only to stand in the gap and pray. He's looking for people to be the bridge in the gap. In the form of taking what is in His hand and passing it on to someone who needs it. See, that's the way that we bring heaven to earth. Okay. You need a stretch? Stand up. Hug somebody. Can I get some water? Oh, there is water. Here it is. Good.
<coughs> okay, now don't get carried away. Half an hour, perfect. Quarter two. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, you can sit down. This is not the tea break. There is one coming, but it's not now. In half an hour, okay? So, quarter to 11, we shall break for tea. And check the score. (laughs) All right, the Holy Spirit... I want us to talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit's ministry. Um... And, and very quickly to say, we have, we have looked at some texts that give us, by um, just in summary, give us the picture of the fact that the Holy Spirit has been involved in the story of God from before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit of God. And therefore, everything that God has done, somebody said it well when they said, wherever one person of the Godhead is present, the others are not absent. It's a good way to understand it. God, God is never segregated, separated. When, he, when, he, when the Father sent Jesus into the world, the Father was not absent from what Jesus was doing. The Holy Spirit came upon him and stayed with him. And so he was operating under the anointing and the, and the power of the, the Holy Spirit. And so he's always been engaged in the story of God. But let's look more specifically, his ministry in the Old Testament. As we pointed out, Genesis 1 verse 3, brooding over the surface of the deep. The word hovering, or as my friend in Zambia says, hoovering. (laughs) Hoovering over the surface of the deep. The the, the word literally is like, it uses the the language of of a hen who is brooding over her eggs. So that her... Her uh, chest, uh, the, the, the blood vessels around her chest actually um, expand and become uh, d- dilated so that they can, so that she can transmit heat to the eggs. And that's the, the word, the kind of word picture that is used of the Spirit's work in creation. He hovers, he broods over the surface of the deep. And into that, bro- into that broodiness, into that... Uh, fertile environment, God speaks, the Father speaks and says, light be and light is. The Spirit needs to come before the Word is powerful. The Spirit needs to be present before the Word can have its effect. Reading the Word without the Spirit doesn't get you anywhere. Hearing the Word without the Spirit is basically uh, boring. Church without the Holy Spirit should be boring. It should bore us to tears. We should become so dependent on the Holy Spirit that the worst place to be is in church without Him. You see, what we've done is we've hedged our bets. We've got a whole lot of other things that we can do just in case God doesn't show up. You know, like... And, and uh, this, is not an, this is not personal at all, Mary Ellen, but great music, a nice environment, nice banners, lovely, beautiful, stained glass, fantastic, air conditioning, 
Okay. Well, fans then, at least fans, ceiling fans. Nice people. Your kind of people. All of that. You see, what we do is we create church in which we are comfortable. So that, so that in case church is less than God coming in the door and bashing it around because he's too big for the entry, entryway and, and the building shakes and all of our familiar ways of doing things get shaken and even our presuppositions get shaken and even our theologies get smashed. <laughs> I don't know how I got there. Okay, let's, let's move on. The ministry... His ministry in the, in the Old Testament. So brooding and hovering over the surface of the deep. Anointing or coming upon people. I looked it up and it was hundreds, hundreds of, of references to the Spirit of the Lord came upon. The Lord came upon Samson by His Spirit. He anointed the judges. So the word anointing is something that happened in the Old Testament. But what you need to understand is that in their case, it was a little bit more like God as an alien. It was a little more like they were strong people or they were good people or whatever, and the Lord visited them. The Lord landed upon them, and for that moment, He anointed them. Even to some extent, changed them by that anointing. Like it says in First Samuel 21 about Saul, it says, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be changed into a different person. And of course, that's exactly what happens to Saul. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he lies down and prophesies among the, he, he prophesies among the prophets. And they, they made up a song about it and said, is Saul also among the prophets? So Saul became a different person for that little while, but the Spirit didn't stay with him. If you remember, when David used to play his harp, the Spirit of the Lord would land on Saul as a result of the worship song. But he didn't stay with him. The Old Testament dispensation was not one of permanent residence. It was one of visitation. There are some people who, 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 bring, who impose an Old Testament theology on the church and speak about the visitation of God. Well, God doesn't need to visit because He lives here. Okay, so the, the, the third thing that we read about in the Old Testament is that he inspired the prophets. And the, one of the words that is used, Peter, in the New Testament, describes that like this. He says, the, the prophets did not speak or write under their own authority or by their own wisdom, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The, the idea that is given is one of a, of a log in a big river. And the log just gets carried along. It goes where the river's going. It doesn't have a will of its own. And, and he says that's literally what happened to the prophets. They were inspired to such a measure that their words became God's words. Uh, the ones that wrote the scriptures uh, I'm talking about. Or the ones whose prophecies were recorded as scripture that literally the words of the prophet became the words of God. Or reflected the words of God in a very direct and accurate way, in a way that we speak of as um, in, what's the word? Not infallible, the word is 
irrefutable. What's the word, Jonathan, the theological word? Inerrant. Inerrant. The scriptures are inerrant. That literally means that in their substance, they, are, they make no mistakes. The scriptures make no mistakes. In their substance, okay? That doesn't mean that there aren't some places where they got a seven instead of a two. But that's too big a subject for now. So let's move on. Okay. The Holy Spirit and His gift, His ministry in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see some interesting changes. First of all, of course, we, the first time we read of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it is when He comes upon the Virgin Mary and she conceives by the Holy Spirit. Also, as the Nicene Creed tells us, He, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the, 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 the fertility that came into Mary and she was able to become pregnant with the Messiah. Also, in the case of Jesus and of John the Baptist, at least, uh, we read of him anointing them. So, pretty much like the prophets of the Old Testament, he came upon or anointed both John the Baptist, the last prophet of the old dispensation, and Jesus, the Messiah in the new dispensation. Then, of course, fast forward to when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And he says, he is with you, but he will be in you. He is with you now, but there's a day coming. And this is radical. This is revolutionary. He is going to be in you. And that word in is both personal and corporate. Personal and corporate. We are individually temples of the Holy Spirit, and we are together as the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Both of those are true. Both of those are referenced in Scripture. And of course, the, um, the way in which that was introduced in, major, in the major sense was in the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus in chapter 1 verse 5 says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They wait. Finally the day of Pentecost comes and they were all, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. So it uses the word filled and baptized interchangeably there and we'll come to that in a moment. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the words or the utterance or the power to speak. The purpose of that baptism of the Holy Spirit was not only to birth the church, but also to empower the church. By the way, we know, don't we, that when Jesus rose, the day of his resurrection, what did he do? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So in some way, in some sense, what he had told them in John chapter 16, he is with you, but he will be in you, happened on, the, the, on resurrection day. He gave them, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. And the parallel, of course, is with Adam and the creation. When God breathed into a lump of clay and Adam became a living soul, a living being. And so Jesus is facing this lump of terrified clay called the disciples. And he says, and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Inhale the Holy Spirit. And they were alive in the Spirit already by the time the day of Pentecost came. 
But then they were empowered by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There are two different purposes for those two givings of the Spirit. In the same way as you can have a drink of water and it brings you eternal life, John chapter 4, and you can have a river of water flowing out of you and that brings you, let's just say, disruption. You become disrupted and you become a disrupting influence in the world. You, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now listen, that's messy. So if you're not up for messy, don't get involved with the Holy Spirit. If you're not up for discomfort, don't get involved with the Holy Spirit. He is going to mess you up. He's going to, he's going to change your ways. He's going, to, he's going to take you where you didn't want to go. And when you get there, you'll go, man, I so enjoy this. This is wonderful. He will change your want-tos. That's how he does it. God never makes you do anything you don't want to do, but he will make you want some things that you never wanted before. He'll make you love things that you never loved before. He'll make you pray prayers that you never thought of. And as you're praying them, it breaks your heart to pray them. It's the most, the most amazing thing. He makes you fall in love with what he loves. Go figure. It's weird. And so God's purpose with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament was to empower them. Also, of course, to seal or preserve them for salvation. The Holy Spirit is spoken of in Ephesians as the seal of our salvation. The deposit guaranteeing the full payment. So it's like a lay-by. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the down payment on the full kingdom. Okay? king will come and when that king comes the spirit of the Lord will be poured out upon us and that will be the beginning of the full expression of everything that shalom in, in, includes forgiveness and healing and deliverance and settlement of your debts and the fixing of your relationships and the healing of your sicknesses and the destruction of every demonic force and the provision of all your needs and the resurrection from the dead <laughs> and in case I left anything out, you can have that too. Food on your table, your dog and your cat and your donkey and your budgie and your cows and your sheeps, all having lots of babies, and you having lots of babies. <laughs> the woman all said, I thought this was supposed to be good news. Okay, so, moving on. The, the, the final, the last aspect that we're going to spend some time on in the next session is the purpose or the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament was one of being the expressor or the manifestor of gifts. So, we'll go into, the more, into more detail about it in, a, in, a, in the next session, as I said, but... but Here's the thing, what we speak of as the gifts of the Spirit are simply the attributes of God expressed through a human channel. Bringing heaven to earth. And it happens through this person. And, and again, maybe just to re-emphasize the point, 
the manifestations happen to the measure that there is relationship with the Holy Spirit. Okay. The Holy Spirit is not fuel that you put in a tank. He is a person. I should maybe go back a, a point or two here to say this. When we, we read the word, be filled with the Holy Spirit, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? I've heard many sermons from youth group onwards, um, heard many talks given about how we are like a car that runs out of gas, out of fuel, and then we come on Sundays and, and, the, and the Lord puts more fuel in the tank so that we can make it to the next Sunday. You, you know that kind of analogy? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is, is spoken about as something that is for our benefit. In other words, so that we get stronger, we get more strength by an ability to operate by the Holy Spirit. The word filled is not a spatial concept in the New Testament. It's not filling as filling a space, filling a tank. The word filled has... The, carries the idea of being overwhelmed by. The, the, it, it, it's related to the word plero, pleroma. So it talks about the fullness of Israel, the pleroma of Israel. And, uh, and when, when it speaks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, basically it means being drowned. It means being overwhelmed. The word baptize, baptismo, it means the same thing. It has to do with being overwhelmed by, immersed in, put under the influence of the Spirit. So when people get a little bit strange when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, that's not, that shouldn't surprise us. Sometimes when people laugh uncontrollably or weep uncontrollably or flop around like a fish out of water on the floor, uh, we should go, by the way, that is not the Holy Spirit. That is a person's response to the Holy Spirit. And some people respond this way and some people respond that, that way. And there's no one size fits all in terms of our responses. And by the way, our responses do not give us any kind of merit. You're not somehow more holy because you fell over when the Holy Spirit came upon you. You're not more holy. You're just weaker. <laughs> you go down quicker. So, our, our the phenomena that happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon us are completely, completely immaterial. We should not make any theology of them. We should not make them into a model. We should not make them into a, a requirement for anyone. Nothing is a requirement. Or restricted. Or restricted. We, we, we should just let things happen. And every so often, because there are going to be strangers in the house, you should explain it a little bit. Just say, don't worry about them. They just, they're just a little bit weak. Don't worry. There's nothing, nothing strange. It's just... Sometimes people have this way of responding. And uh, so don't let it upset you, and don't let it make you feel as though you've got to be like them. Okay. The uh, two other points in this section, and then we will break for tea. So his work in the believer... 
as I said earlier, the Holy Spirit is going to disrupt you. Disrupt you. He's going to disrupt your life. He's going to disrupt your comfort zones. We are called in the New Testament the people of the Spirit. The church is the people of the Spirit. A habitation of God in the Spirit or by the Spirit. We need to learn more and more to live by the new life force that has invaded and overwhelmed us. You see, I said last night about the schizophrenia thing that happens to us. That we are living between the times. We are living with one foot in this world and another foot in that other, in that kingdom that is to come, that age to come. And so sometimes we have these conflicting things going on. And, and here's, what I've, here's what I've discovered about God. The only way to end the argument is to lose it. The only way, only way to get peace is surrender your point of view. Again, a, a Bob Mumford statement from those years ago. He said, he and the Lord were having this, this argument one day, and the Lord said to him, Mumford, if you and I are going to get along, one of us is going to have to change. And I am the Lord, I change not. So we need to learn to live by the Spirit. Learn to respond to those little, those little awarenesses, those witnesses, those prompts. Learn to respond to them. And very often, the Lord will spend a lot more time talking about the stuff on the inside of you than He will be talking to you about others. You remember, that's how it started with Isaiah. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. The angel said, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His glory. And then he said, oive. He did. He literally said, oive. And the word means, I am unraveling. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the Almighty. And then the angel comes and cleanses him. But you see, it doesn't start until it starts in here. I am a man of unclean lips. God doesn't go, okay, go and bear witness to the people, go and give them this message, and I'll fix you as you go. It would be nice if he did that. But a lot of the time there are some things, now before you leave on this journey, Isaiah, let me first do something about those lips. Let me first do something about that that uh, insensitivity. Let me first do something about the fact that you think ministry is about you. It's a badge of honor. It's some kind of a merit badge that you prayed for a sick person and they got healed. God empowers compassion. And so he's first going to work the compassion in you and then he'll put the power. We go, power, give us the power, give us the power, give us the power. And the Lord is going, you don't know what you're asking. Because when the power comes, it's going to destroy you first. So that what people see is not you, but me. Learn to live by Him. This involves things like the spiritual disciplines. Prayer, fasting. As He prompts you. It, in, it involves giving. It involves silence. It involves withdrawal from the hustle and bustle. So that there's something that forms 
in us. Very interesting book I, um, I was, it was recommended to me uh, a while ago that is, that is called How God Changes Your Brain, written by a neurologist who actually speaks in the book about the fact that there are physiological, neurological, chemical changes to the brain of a person who spends time alone with God. Interesting thing. Fascinating. So, and in fact, what they have discovered, what these neurologists have discovered, which is, um, which is an interesting thing, is that, um, is that there is an inbuilt, you know what preachers have been saying for years, there's a God-shaped vacuum inside you? Neurologists are saying it's absolutely true. There is a God-shaped vacuum inside you. And it is only satisfied by a relationship with God. The guy wrote it, he was an agnostic when he did the research. That's called How God Changes Your Brain. Um, uh, I'll find it later. And I'll give you the author's name and all of that in case you're interested. So, his work in you is going to help you to come to terms with your own stuff. Now, when, when I say your own stuff, I'm talking about your habits. I'm talking about your personality. The things that are not, they don't have moral value. They're not good or bad. But they are just the ways that you have been trained and the ways in which your, your DNA has wired you. Um, and uh, because, you see, a lot of the time, we, we think that we've got to have a certain kind of personality and a certain kind of gift mix and a certain kind of... Uh, we, we have to be of a certain age and we have to be of a certain uh, uh, um, political persuasion before God can use us in this way or that way or the other way. Uh, I was in Texas last year and discovered that, uh, that for Texans... There will be no Democrats in heaven. You cannot be a Christian and a Democrat in, in, uh, in Texas. It's definitely not in Texas. And if you think that you're a Democrat and you're going to heaven, they will help you get there quickly. <laughs> Faster than you thought or planned. Anyway, so uh, what, what I mean when I say coming to terms with your own stuff, Get, get, get in touch with your emotional wiring, with your personality, your style, and realize that God loves, this, loves that and he will use that. Very often the things that we use as an excuse are the very things that God wants to anoint. You know, like we'll say, well, I'm a woman. You know, I'm a woman. And you know, women. And the Lord is going, yes, I'm... That's why I'm looking at you. I'm picking you. I pick you. Come here. Bring that woman thing here. Bring that woman. Uh, or a person like Moses who said, I, I, no, I've got a speech impediment. Use my brother. God goes, the very reason why I want you is so that I can show my power in your weakness. Same thing that he said to Saul. You know that thorn in the flesh? Bring it here. So that when people see what I will do through you, they will know God is in the house. 
there is a God. In times of the renewal of the Holy Spirit that I've seen, uh, it was one, one of the most wonderful things for me was when the phenomena happened to the most unlikely people. I love it when God does that. I just love it. I love it when I'm, I'm praying for someone and I haven't said a word about, they've never read the Bible, they've, they've never, uh, haven't said a word to them about things like uh, what happens to you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and they start speaking in tongues. It's like a little bit like Peter with Cornelius' household, right? He goes, and as he was speaking to them, they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And he says, well, who can forbid water that these should be baptized? Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. One time I was ministering in Phoenix, Arizona, in, a, uh, in uh, the, the Brian Anderson's church there. And uh, so there were people came forward for prayer afterwards, and I was praying. I was praying for this guy. This girl brings uh, her boyfriend, and he's tattoos and piercings and things like this, and he's on all kinds of drugs. So I start praying for him, and as I pray, the Holy Spirit hits him like a freight train. He goes down, and as he falls to the ground, he is shaking like a, like flipping like a fish out of water. He is swearing the most terrible curse words because he doesn't like what's going on, but he can't do anything about it. And suddenly the curse words talk, turn into speaking in tongues. The guy gets saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, as he's, as he's on the way down. And the, and the curse words were like exchanged for, for praising God in another tongue. You know, when you see that, you go, there is a God. This is not something that anyone could have dreamed up. Nobody suggested it to him. There was no manipulation going on. So, by the way, the less we're involved in the way that the gifts manifest themselves, the more your faith will grow. So, so be in that place where if God doesn't show up, nothing is going to happen. Because then you know that whatever does happen, it was the Lord. What we need to see is more of God and much, much, much less of what we can manipulate people into. The church has developed some terrible habits of manipulation, auto-suggestion, you know, shaking people until they speak in tongues. Telling them to say banana backwards until they speak in tongues. How do you say banana backwards? <laughs> Everybody's trying it, right? You see, you see. So come to terms with your own stuff. And understand this, God picks you. God wants to use you just as you are. Learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. Get to know the Holy Spirit by and, and, and getting to know the Holy Spirit has to do with both reading about Him in the Word and then also interacting with Him in prayer. Praying a lot in tongues. When Paul says, I thank my God, I speak in tongues more than you all. And then he goes on, but in public I would rather speak five words with my understanding. But I, I often think, you know Paul, the reason why your five words with understanding were so powerful is because you spent all that time speaking in tongues. So get to know the, 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 the rhythms of the Spirit inside you. Get to know, get, respond to those times when he says, let's just go aside, spend some time in the garden and just, just wait. 
uh, or other times when he'll say, let's go hang out with some poor people. Get to know him. Respond to what he is saying. The fruit-producing process is one that Jesus speaks about in John chapter 15 as something that he... he um, uh, the, the, the analogy he uses is the sap that flows through the vine. So when, he's, when he uses language like abide in me, he literally means get into a, a relationship with me where the sap flows, where the sap is flowing. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. And as a result of that, you will bear fruit. You will bear more fruit. You will bear much fruit. You will bear fruit that remains. There's an, there's an ascending order. There's an order of increase in the, in the quality and the quantity, the lastingness, the sustainability of the fruit of the, on the vine. And it's all got to do with the several times over Jesus says, in the same way that I abide in my Father, you also must abide in me. And the agency of that in Jesus' life was the Spirit of God. And the same thing goes for us. Jesus is our example. Now, maybe also just a final theological point. Jesus is not just an example. Jesus is our Savior, the only way of salvation. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the, 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 the Almighty in living evidence in the flesh. Jesus has the name that is above every name. No one will ever reduce his rank or even match it. No one will sit on the same level as he does. But he at the same time says, I have done these things so that uh, I've done these things and I've said these things to you so that the works that I do, you will do also. So I'm also an example. Jesus is saying. Okay, we'll end there and uh, we'll pick up in how long? 20 minutes?